Well, good morning. Good to see you came back this morning. Uh, always good to see you and always good to be here to study God's Word together. Uh, we'll be looking at the next section of Paul's letter, his introduction to the letter. You'll remember there are three parts to that introduction. Standard introduction to a New Testament, a first century letter, and uh, whether it's uh, biblically based, Christian based, or, or secularly based, it's the to and from section, the greetings, and then the thanksgiving. And that's normally very short and sort of meaningless in a typical letter. Paul has taken it and added great meaning to it. He's added Christian meaning to it. He has Christianized the first century standard opening to a letter. And we've looked at the first two sections. We'll look at that third section, the thanksgiving today. And we'll, we'll begin by reading the scripture and looking at a summary of that uh, of those six verses. Then we want to enter into our class discussion. I sent to you an email three questions, discussion questions, uh, suggestions that you might look at and think about ahead of time to help us to get the most out of the class this morning. And we'll look at those three very important, very relevant questions, and then we'll look at the outline and uh, proceed through the outline for the lesson. So let's begin by reading the scripture together. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would guide us as we enter into this study, that you would open our, our minds and our hearts to receive your word, to be able to glean from it all that we need to glean from it, to be able to please you and serve you in a better way. Uh, we look to you now to help us, to guide us, to edify us as we do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Summary statement. Now, if you paid attention, you know I didn't ask you in the letter to write a summary statement. I was hoping that somebody would do my old heart good, make it sing by voluntarily writing a summary statement that they can read to us this morning. So who would like to volunteer their summary statement? Yes. So a year ago, I wrote you a poem. Yes. And you I wrote, wrote you one back. And you wrote a haiku. A haiku, yeah. So I, you're taking the challenge of brevity is what you're after. Right. <laughs> so I'm writing a haiku for this. Uh, confirmed in Christ, yes. Enriched in speech and knowledge. Wait now in your Wonderful. Uh, everybody recognize that haiku is Japanese, and I forget how many syllables yeah. or each line of it there, but. 
Uh, it's very short, but it can take a while to, to get everything to fit into the into the format. Wonderful, thank you for that. You picked up on all the major points there. Edward. Thank you, Ryan. It's a little hard because I mean, some of the stuff kind of like is hard to condense it. Um, Paul gives thanks to God because of the grace given to the people of Corinth um, through Jesus Christ. And acknowledge those in Corinth were enriched as a testimony of Christ was confirmed. Okay, very good. Again, you picked up on those major points of, uh, of the first, or not the first three, but the, the next six verses. Uh, in the last six verses of Paul's introduction to the letter. Anybody else want to give a six summary? Well, let me add to, to those very good, excellent uh, summaries of this by giving you um, my attempt at it. I'm more verbose. I work at it. I try to get this down, but it doesn't work. So one of the best ways of doing this, I think, is to begin by saying Paul says that. And then you put it into your own words, what Paul says. God's grace given in Christ has in every way enriched the Corinthian church in all speech and knowledge, for which he thanks God always, and which confirms the gospel witness about Christ among them. Therefore, they do not lack any gift as they wait for the second coming of Christ and the judgment of the day of Christ. God sustains their guiltlessness unto that day, since he is faithful, and he is the one who has called them into the fellowship of his son. It's a wonderful passage, and there's much for us to see there. So let's plunge into the discussion questions and see what you've uh, come up with as you study this, uh, this passage. Here's the question I sent to you. In 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9, how many verses refer to Christ? Of the first nine verses, I wanted to expand it out. Remember, this is the unity. This is the introduction. First three verses we looked at last week, four through nine this week. So how many times is Christ mentioned in the six verses we're studying today? How many in all nine verses of the introduction, First Corinthians, which includes that standard introduction? How many refer to Christ? What significance is this? I would like to tackle that question. First part of it's easy, it's just counting. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, five in this section of the four already in the preface, so nine just in the nine verses. Okay. Nine. Uh, in, in, the, in the whole. And five, there are actually six references to Christ if you count the hymn. I believe that's in verse 5, where he references Christ as him. So it doesn't mention his name there, but he is referenced there, and it's pretty obvious from the context that that's him. He's the him uh, of that verse. So nine times. Think about this. Nine short verses, and, and if we count the him, then there are actually ten, aren't there? Because one verse has two references to Christ by name. So it's Christ, 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 Christ. It's actually God and Christ, God and Christ, God and Christ. What does that tell us? Why is that important? Normally you don't 
when you're writing something, you don't repeat something that many times. Why would Paul do that? Yeah. I think he's he wants to really bring out the primacy of Christ. Yeah. Because in the subsequent verses, we're going to see that this not recognizing the primacy of Christ was a problem for the Corinthians. Right. Right. Very, very true. Paul is emphasizing here the, the, the Christology of what he's going to be discussing uh, in, in a more negative way later on in the letter as he's having to call them out for it. But you remember we said last week that he is taking this, this opening, he's Christianizing it. He's not just putting random Christian words in to Christianize it. They are targeted. Uh, it's targeted content. And that content further is targeted toward the problems of the Corinthians. So here, very much so, Paul is emphasizing Jesus Christ because their focus was somewhere else. Their focus was on themselves or the focus was upon men. Men who uh, who were great speakers especially. Uh, they highly valued uh, rhetorical abilities and the knowledge uh, conveyed in that in that rhetoric. The, the rhetoric, by the way, that they valued was not the classical rhetoric of, of exposing the truth and persuading people to the truth, but rather it's just simply persuading people uh, to, to your viewpoint, whether it's true or not, uh, whether it's right or not. You know, when I was in junior high school, our uh, English teacher decided that we were going to learn how to debate. And she assigned us to debate teams. And and some people got the positive, and others got the negative. I was assigned to the, and this is a different time now. This is back in the 50s. And I was assigned the task of, of uh, being in favor of the, of the war of northern aggression on the part of the, of the North, which I did not support. <laughs> and so it would have been wonderful, wonderful if I'd had the rhetorical skills to be able to do that then. But that's the kind of rhetoric that the Corinthians value, is, is being able to take a, a position and persuade others to it. True or not, didn't matter. Persuasion was the, was the key. And Paul is going to address that. And so one of the reasons he's calling out Christ here is Christ is the thing that we need to emphasize. He's refocusing the, their attention in, in sort of a subtle way. He's going to do it more to the point as he gets into the end of the letter. So he's, he's emphasizing this and we see the, the emphasis on the Christology. Second discussion question. The word confirmed in verse 6 and the word sustain in verse 8 are the same word in the original. The common and biblical use of the word in a legal or business sense of to prove something to be true, to verify or to guarantee. So what in this passage has God proven to be true, verified or guaranteed? Let me read those Two verses for us again. And verse 6 says, Even as the testimony of Micah's talk about God's grace, thanking God for the grace that he has given them, how they've been enriched. 
even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. And then down in verse 8, he's talking about the day of the Lord, the day of the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So sustain, that's the same word. Maybe I, oh, I like to say that. It's one of my favorite Greek words because it's fun to say, maybe I, uh, to confirm or to sustain or to prove something. So what is Paul setting forth here that, that is proven? Their faith. Yeah. Their faith. Their faith. Uh, their profession of their faith, isn't it? Uh, that he's and, and he's doing that. Uh, the proof is the grace of God that has been given to them and has enriched them. So there's a there's visible evidence that their profession of faith is real, even though they had problems, even though there were serious problems. And Paul's going to address that and try to bring them back on course again. But nevertheless. They were called saints. And Paul says that my testimony about Christ when I was there has been proven, has been has been shown to be true and effective that you actually, God opened your understanding and you accepted the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that I preached to you when I was there. And, and that is an evidence by the changed lives that you have. Even though there were problems, even though they needed to correct those things, no doubt when, when the secular community, the pagan community around them, saw the change in them, it must have been astonishing, even though they had, they had these problems. And so that's the proof. Uh, I got to think about proof, and I'm sure some of you are bakers, you like to bake bread and things, pies and such. What does it mean to, to proof the dough if you're baking bread? The yeast. The, the heat, and, and what does the heat do? It makes it rise, right? So it, it's the rising of the dough uh, that in effect proofs the dough. That it's good dough, and it's good leaven and there's good yeast in there. Uh, what happens if there's no rising? You've done your dough, you put it there for a couple of hours, nothing happens. You forgot the yeast. <laughs> you forgot the yeast, or you had bad yeast maybe that was dead. The water was too hot. I'm sorry? Or the water was too hot. Oh, the water was too hot. Yeah, some problem. In other words, the dough is no good now, right? So, the principle there is, it's not dough unless it rises. It's not a genuine profession of faith unless there's some evidence of that genuine profession of faith. And that's going to be seen in the outworking of the grace of God that has been genuinely uh, given by God to them on their profession of faith in Christ. And they have been equipped and enriched with all of these spiritual gifts not everyone individually has all the spiritual gifts, but the spiritual gifts that God gives to every church uh, of, uh, made up of true believers so that that church functions 
properly and efficiently and in a way that glorifies God. They had that. And so Paul says that was the confirmation, that was the proof of their profession. Their profession was proof. Third question. I gave you a list of uh, verses, many of them from the Old Testament. And I won't read them all because some of them are a little uh, long, but I hope you took time to read through those. About this day of the Lord that is very prevalent in the Old Testament in the prophetic books. And we see it also in the New Testament. Except in the New Testament, it's usually called the day of Christ. Or it's the day of the Lord with uh, Lord referring in the New Testament usually to Christ. Not always, but but we can be pretty sure if we found the word Lord in the New Testament, that's a reference to Christ. Old Testament, it's the word Lord spelled with all capital letters. And what does that mean when we encounter the word Lord in the Old Testament on all caps? That's God's name, isn't it? It's Yahweh. Uh, Moses said, who can I tell Pharaoh that you are? So they'll listen to me. God said, tell him that I am that I am. My name is I am. And so he went and told Pharaoh, Yahweh told me uh, to let my people go. And that's God's name. So when you see that in the Old Testament, the indication in most English translations is to put that in all caps. So uh, we have the day of the Lord Jesus Christ here. When we read those verses, we see the day of the Lord and with Lord there spelled in all caps, God's personal name. So first of all, the Old Testament and New Testament point to the same event. What is that event? What does it mean the day of the Lord or the day of Christ? It, it's an eschatology, eschatology means study of the end things. So it's an eschatological point. Uh, and it's pointing ahead to what's going to take place at the end of this age when Christ comes again. We know it it's culminates in Christ coming again. But the New Testament tells us that that period of time is going to get, as it comes closer, uh, it will become more, uh, a more difficult period of time as God pours out his judgment upon unbelievers. Now, the Old Testament says the same thing. It says it in a very dramatic language. Uh, why do you want the day of the Lord to come, it says? It's a time of darkness, not of light. And for unbelievers, that's going to be true. For believers, that's our great hope that Christ comes again for us. And we look forward to the coming again of Christ. Yes? A question for God's comment. Um, the reading of the passages, all of my tough ones, having the word Revelation, the book of Revelation coming to me, because it's the book of the judgment. I had this with my son's friends. Am I wrong? I, I, I couldn't Re- quite. Revelation, I kept on seeing overtures of Revelation. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, you're not wrong at all. Um, now there, there, there are several different interpretations. Uh, three main interpretations of the of the way things wind up. Uh, 
premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. Our church takes an amillennial position. The timing of it is not the important thing. It's secondary to the fact of it that Christ is coming again. And that's the great hope of the church, that Christ is coming again in judgment upon unbelievers and his enemies. And, in, and it's a great hope of those of us who believe and who are waiting uh, for that day. So I think it's the same event that's being described. You know, we've talked several times about this idea of already, but not yet. There, there are things in scripture, promises of God that have been given us that apply to eternity and, and apply to that time when Christ comes again. But there's a sense in which that's already happening. Christ will reign on the earth upon the throne of David. That's a promise given to us. He's not doing that yet, but he is reigning and he's reigning in heaven, seated at the right hand uh, of the throne of majesty. And so he is reigning, it's already begun. It's already happening, but not yet, not yet. I think the day of the Lord is, is a similar thing. You remember in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he called what was happening in the beginning of the day of the Lord. So I think this entire period between Advents, first Advent, second Advent, can be referred to as the day of the Lord. But it's developing as he goes along. And, and it's already here, but not yet. And when it does get here, it's going to devolve upon uh, devolve upon God's enemies in a very dramatic way. And it will be a very dramatic effect for us uh, when, when Christ comes again for us and when we, we stand guiltless. Uh, we talked about that guarantee of being guiltless. And uh, when we stand faultless <coughs> before the throne. And, and so that's what we look forward to. So it's the same event, but there's a sense in which what's going on right now can be described as being the day of the Lord. Uh, now, how important is it that when describing this event, the Old Testament says it is God's day and the New Testament says it is Christ's day? Is that important? How so? He is God. Those, those very verses that speak of the day of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, God's personal name, those very verses are quoted in the New Testament, except it's the day of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's a very important and powerful proof of the deity of Christ. So the one acting in the Old Testament is, is God. The one acting in the New Testament doing the same thing is Christ. Uh, so Christ is God, the one who's doing that. And we see that in many different areas. Uh, one of my favorite comparisons is Isaiah 6. You remember when Isaiah was commissioned and the actor there is God, the one who is sitting high and lifted up, the holy, holy, holy. In, in Isaiah chapter 6, that's, that's described to God, Yahweh. 
New Testament, John chapter 6, that holy, 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 that being high and lifted up, that's described in Christ. So it's another instance of an Old Testament being referred to in the New Testament applied to Christ because Christ is God. It's the deity of Christ that's being set forth here. And, and we see that here in Paul's uh, letter. Again, I think intentional on his part of emphasizing the importance of what he's about to write to them to bring their attention back to Christ and not to themselves and not to the accomplishments of other human beings. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's proceed on to the to the outline, and we'll go down through the verses here. There are three points to the outline. Uh, by the way, you can get this online. <laughs> Have you all seen it on our website? The Sunday school classes are being recorded, and so if you get coffee, don't stand in front of the camera. Uh, uh, but it's being recorded. You can get the slides now because they're on, online, so you can go back and review this. Or if you're if you're traveling, you're out of town, you're not here one Sunday, you can go back and see the lesson. So the three points here in, in our outline. The riches of God's grace in Christ. We see that in verses 4, 5, and 7. Secondly, we see the extent of God's guarantee in Christ in verses 6 and 8. And then finally, the impact of God's faithfulness in Christ in verse 9. Let's look at the riches of God's grace in Christ. First thing we see is that this grace was given. Now, grace is unmerited favor. It's what God bestows on us, even though we don't deserve it. And we have done nothing to deserve it, and we can do nothing to deserve it. It is God's unmerited favor. So the given here, this is grace given, speaks of the deity, the, the actions of God. And we emphasized that last week, the acts, sovereign acts of God in those first three verses. We see that continuing now. So God's activity here in part is being emphasized by Paul. That grace was given by God in Christ Jesus. So as we've seen already, everything that's occurring here is done by God. His sovereignty is done in and through Christ Jesus. So it's God in Christ. It's God in Christ. And we see that repeatedly. That's Paul's emphasis here intentional emphasis. And then we see in verses 5 and 7 that this uh, th there is an enrichment and, and we're told what that enrichment is in verse 5. We're told that they are enriched in every way in Christ. They are enriched in every way. Uh, now again, that doesn't mean every individual Corinthian believer had everything, but the church was enriched in every way, everything they needed to serve God and to please Him, they had. God had enriched them through the grace. Uh, he's done that for us too. And, and, uh, and we see that, I think, working out in a remarkable way in our church. He's enriched 
the congregation of Second Presbyterian in every way. In all speech and knowledge, again in verse 5. Now again, the speech that they're concerned with here in the mind of the Corinthians is high rhetorical flourish. Let's call it that. Uh, they value the ability of a person to speak with, with great authority and with great ability and to persuade the listeners to their point of view and having the knowledge uh, to do that. So speech and knowledge are very important to them. Paul has a very different idea about that speech and knowledge and how it should be used in the life of a Christian. But here in the introduction, He's just giving them a little nudge to, to prepare the ground for what's coming later. The third thing, we see the result. There's no lack of any gift. They, that church has all the gifts they need to be able to serve God effectively. Gift of administration, of teaching, of helps, and all those other spiritual gifts they focused on just one, speaking in tongues. They, they, and then they were, they had a wrong view of speaking in tongues. Paul is going to address that uh, well for us when we get to that section of 1 Corinthians. And then in verse 4, they were enriched while they were waiting for the revealing of Christ. Now, one of the problems that we're going to see that the Corinthians had is they thought very highly of themselves. They thought they were so spiritual that they had already arrived. We sit here, if we have a proper view, and are thinking, I'm a, I'm a sinner. And uh, I haven't arrived yet, but with God's grace, I'm trying, I'm cooperating with the Holy Spirit to become more like Christ every day. And I'm looking forward to that great hope of the church. I'm, I'm longing for Christ to come again. Not the Corinthians at this point. Uh, they're good enough. They don't have to wait. For, they don't have the blessed hope in view. Uh, they've already arrived. Uh, and Paul is going to correct that. It's uh, what some people have called an over-realized eschatology. They, they already have it. They're going to wait for the end. Uh, most professing believers today, in my opinion, have an under-realized eschatology. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, I, I believe in Christ. What more do I need to do? And there's no change in their life. There's no difference in, in the way they live their life before and after salvation. It's underrealized eschatology. In fact, it's not Christianity at all. There's no doubt if it hasn't risen. And that profession is hollow if there's no evidence of that profession. So, the riches of God in Christ again. And you notice in all those verses, 4, 5, 7, it references the Lord Jesus Christ. Second point, the extent of God's guarantee in Christ. To what extent does he give this consummation? 
this sustaining, this proofing of their profession. He says their testimony by Christ was confirmed or proofed, proven, by, by virtue of the, we see the, the spiritual graces, uh, spiritual gifts that God has given them by His grace. And then they will be preserved or sustained or proofed guiltless unto the day of Christ. So already they are, there's some rising taking place. There's a second rising in making bread, isn't there? And now that comes at the end. Uh, and, and that's being guiltless in the day of Christ. And so Paul is emphasizing again, don't concentrate on the right now. We need to, to work in our sanctification in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. But the real, uh, the real thing that we're looking forward to is being presented faultless or guiltless before the throne uh, in the day of eternity. And, and, and that will be the thing. So the extent, it's to the end. Paul says here, it is to the end that they will be sustained. You know, John uses that same terminology to the end in, uh, in chapter 13, I believe it is, of John, uh, when, he's, uh, when he's watching the disciples' feet. It says, he loved them to the end. Some translations have that, he loved them to the uttermost. Uh, it's an infinite love. And that same idea, I think, is here in this introduction to Corinthians. Uh, he, he sustained them to the uttermost, to the end. This is the perseverance of the saints is being talked about here, I think. So the extent is to the uttermost. Third, the impact of God's faithfulness in Christ is in verse 9. Verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. They were called by God. Another indication of divine activity in the life of the Corinthian church and of those believers in that church. They were called. They were called into the fellowship. God has adopted them into the household of God. He has adopted us into the household of God. Those of us who have placed our faith, all people everywhere, as it says in the first three verses, all believers everywhere who have trusted in Christ Jesus. Uh, they have been called into the fellowship of Christ. God cannot lie. God is faithful. He will do all of these things that have been enumerated here in this introduction. And he will bring us safely to the end. So, I end with a question for both you and me. What is the proof of our profession? Do we have a proof of our profession? It should be evident as, as the grace of God is bestowed upon the believer to sustain him now to bring him to the end, 
to make it obvious to people who see that life lived before them that this is a Christian life. This is someone who's placed their trust in Christ. And they're still a sinner, but God has enabled them uh, to live a, a more and more, as time goes on, a, a Christ-like life. So that's the proof of the perfection. So finally, I want to give you a verse that has meant a great, great deal to me, and Helen can <coughs> Helen can confirm that she was there uh, 51 years ago last month. I would say, and, and this verse, I in, in reading the scripture afterwards, I picked up on this verse right away, and so this has meant a great deal to me ever since then. This is Second Corinthians five seventeen. <clears throat> Therefore. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. As the new come, as the old passed away, or I guess more appropriately, as it is it passing away, and as the new coming, is the dough rising. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this lesson from your word. Impress it to our hearts. Help us to think about it during the coming week. Help us to examine ourselves and the, and the way in which the lives that we live are the proof of our profession, uh, just as it was for the Corinthians. And so, Father, we, we thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you that you have adopted us into the family of God. Uh, that we are joint heirs together with Christ. Help us to live like it. In Jesus' name, amen.